0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight we begin a series called Code Blue, a look into the crisis facing our healthcare system. And we begin on the front lines with the spike in emergency room closures across Canada this summer. What's behind it? and What can be done to fix it? We continue our Back to School 2022 series with a look at a teacher shortage in this country and what impact it could have on the upcoming school year first, we mark Ukrainian Independence Day and six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine by finding out what the mood is like in Kyiv, how the war could unfold in the coming months, and we catch up with a 26-year-old English teacher who we first spoke to as her city, Kharkiv, was under sustained Russian attack back in early March to find out what happened to her and her family and where she is today. Well, It is already Wednesday in Ukraine. That means Independence Day, celebrating the day back in 1991 when the country's declaration of independence, ending decades of Soviet rule from Moscow, was issued. This year, to say the very least, it brings with it a whole new meaning. Not only is it Independence Day, it also marks six months to the day since Russia once again tried to crush the country and bring it back by force into its realm, launching a full-scale, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And while plans to quickly overrun the country, get rid of the democratically elected regime and replace it with some sort of puppet ostensibly loyal to Putin and hold a victory parade within days in the capital of Kiev, or Kiev rather it all failed dramatically and disastrously. The Ukraine of August 24, 2022 is a country at war, a country where thousands have already died, either fighting to fend off a Russian invasion or as civilians are targeted by Russian missiles and artillery. artillery. And it all began here. I was here when it started on the night of the 23rd here, the 24th in Ukraine. We were on the air when we had word that missiles had started to fall on Ukrainian cities. My next guest, was near the top of the show that night. In fact, we brought him on not really knowing what was happening. He had expertise, so we talked about it quite a bit. Um, Alexander Lenoshka is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. He's author of Military Alliances in the 21st Century. He also happens to have been on air with me that night when the war in Ukraine, when the full-scale, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine began. So as we mark six months and for Ukrainian Independence Day... I wanted to bring Alexander back to talk about what's happened since, what could happen next. Alexander, thanks so much for your time tonight. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe it's been six months already. feels like a lifetime. It has been a long time. That was quite the night. I remember I was listening back to our interview that night, and you said some very prescient things. First of all, we were all surprised that it had actually happened because it had been speculated about, about for so long. But you talked about how easy it was to invade. And how hard it is for an invasion to succeed and it feels like you hit it right on the head that night even though we didn't know what was going to happen um what about the last six months has surprised you the most so to be sure i think russia has
1: made some successes or had some successes, especially in the South and in the East, where they have captured large swaths of Ukrainian territory. But of course, as you rightly really pointed out earlier, it has fallen well short of its main objectives, which were, I think, regime change and perhaps reducing uh, Ukraine statehood quite dramatically. None of that has really happened, notwithstanding the massive territorial uh, losses that Ukraine has all the same What has surprised me the most? Well, a number of things have surprised me. It's a very strange war in some respects, but I think one thing has been the sheer lack of planning involved beyond the two, three, or seven days that the Kremlin expected uh, it would have to fight within Ukraine itself. Uh, It seems like they've given orders on the back of napkins just a few days prior to the launch of the invasion. Uh, We have seen serious tactical deficiencies on the Russian side, notwithstanding, again, uh, what successes they might have had in the South and the East. And I think that goes to show some of the assumptions that Russian defense and political leaders had going into this project, which have really denigrated Ukrainian nationhood or the sense of resistance that they uh, thought that the Ukrainians would at at all put up uh, over the
0: course of this campaign you been surprised at you all. Know, one thing that surprised me, because I'd spent time in the east uh, of Ukraine, and it was an area that wasn't, you know, it's not that it wasn't Ukrainian, but you could tell when you went from east to west that that attitudes about the state of Ukraine changed, about Ukraine, Ukrainian nationhood. And it feels like in one fell swoop, Vladimir Putin managed to create a unified, you know, cohesive country. Um, that hadn't really existed. And as we mark Independence Day, I get the impression that although Ukraine is at war, it has never been more Ukrainian than it is today. To be sure, I think that process has
1: been afoot for a while. I think what happened in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent destabilization of the Donbass region in the east, um, there has been a growing sense of Ukrainian uh, identity and nationhood that has started to characterize the Ukrainian body politic. Now, of course, there was some sort of identity basis beforehand. I don't want to exaggerate the point, but it's absolutely on uh, Mark to say that that sense of identity has indeed solidified since 2014. And since February of this year, I think we have seen A further solidification of that very identity. And indeed, we see that in various opinion polls that have been conducted in recent months or even in recent days. Opinion polls that show that the vast majority of Ukrainian respondents do report um, uh, widespread support for President Zelensky or the notion that victory is indeed possible, uh, that um, Ukraine should absolutely not make any sort of territorial concessions, and that it is too soon to uh, negotiate some sort of agreement with Russia, um, that all suggests that there is indeed a very strong sense of unity. And that goes to my point earlier, that Russia simply misunderstood Ukraine, not least Putin has misunderstood Ukraine and that this entire war effort and again, the successes that it has had has been based on a fundamental miscalculation.
0: And when you look at it six months down the line, you know, there's been untold horror in Ukraine and the death of civilians, the continued attacks on civilian infrastructure is obviously reprehensible. It's something we've seen Russia do in the past and other parts of the world as well. Uh, but the damage this has done to Russia's reputation in so many ways, both as a sort of global military power, but also as some as a country that should be negotiated with, that there is some sort of, you just get the feeling now that Russia is, in fact, uh, been cast out of the global community to some extent, not everywhere, uh, but just the damage this has done to Russia's reputation as you know a global military superpower, or power at least. Indeed, it is hard for me to envision what role Russia really has
1: in the European security architecture in the years to come, especially under the leadership of Vladimir Putin or some of his protégés, perhaps, uh, if something were to happen to him, it's very unclear how Russia could at all be integrated under the present leadership, under uh, those who are very much closely related to this particular regime. And indeed, there's still a danger that uh, his... his successor could actually prove to be even more radical and more nationalistic of the sort that we've been seeing in certain Russian discourses, especially since this past weekend. So I think you're right that um, this has... Uh, demonstrated that Russia is completely out of step with the European security order or even maybe dare I say the broader liberal international order Um, of course there are differences of opinion across the world there are some parts of the world that uh, have been a little more skeptical of the western response or western assessments of Russia but at least as regards to the European security order which is indeed what Russia ultimately cares about there is a profound sense of unease and disquiet and that's not going to go away anytime soon.
0: We we've entered, though, and I guess we'll enter a new phase going into the fall and the winter, especially, but we fe- it feels like we've really entered into something like a stalemate now. And we're going to see this war uh, evolve in the way it's been evolving this summer, not the way it evolved in the spring. Uh, and that, that, um, that's going to be difficult for Ukraine. That's, that's a tough burden to bear to have an ongoing stalemate on your territory.
1: I'm not sure I would use the word stalemate to describe what is going on. For sure, if you look at how things are developing on a day-to-day basis, it looks rather static and that the line has not all moved, especially since May. Um, however, there is activity going on. We are seeing Ukraine step up um, attacks on various ammunition depots all around Russian occupied territory, or even within Russian uh, territory itself. We have seen a very bold attack on airfields located within Crimea itself, uh, attacks that might have, in fact, um, destroyed about half of the Black Sea fleet's aviation wing. Uh, We are seeing deeper strikes uh, way beyond uh, the Russian front line. And I think that speaks to a strategy that Ukrainian armed forces have at the moment, which is to go about an offensive, but not necessarily go about an offensive that entails large sweeping maneuvers, throwing manpower at the enemy in broad chunks or in large chunks, but rather to systematically and very methodically, Mm -hmm. pardon me, uh, attrit Russian forces and sort of creep and advance uh, on that territory, precisely because the Ukrainian armed forces do value uh, what manpower that they have and what equipment that they have as well. So there's a certain slowness to the campaign, but would not necessarily call it a stalemate as such.
0: My guest is Alexander Linoshka. He was with us the night of the invasion of Ukraine, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. We're catching up six months later. We've spoken since, but we're catching up six months later, getting uh, sort of a state of the world on what's happening in Ukraine. When we come back, we'll flip that on its head a bit and see what Alex thinks, Alexander thinks, of what the allies have been up to, the allied response to the invasion. That's next. As Germany is moving away from Russian
2: energy at warp speed, Canada is our partner of choice. For now, this means increasing our LNG imports. We hope that Canadian LNG will play a major role in this. But the task at hand is much bigger than simply diversifying our energy supply.
0: German Chancellor Olaf Scholz speaking to a business forum in Toronto, talking today, of course, about uh, Germany's move away from Russian energy. They've been heavily reliant on Russian energy. That's been a big boat of contention in this war as well, because of course, they continue to buy Russian energy, which very much fuels and pays for its war in Ukraine. Alexander Lenoshka is our guest this half hour. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. He was with us the night this invasion of Ukraine began. So we brought him back tonight to talk about what's happened since. So what have you made of, of just the NATO reaction, of, of the Allied reaction uh, to Ukraine and all this? Because we weren't quite sure exactly what the response was going to be when this all started.
1: I think NATO has reacted in a way that has surprised most observers and I think has exceeded expectations as such. I think many people uh, believe that NATO would simply stay on the sidelines and not do too much, but really individual members have coordinated and have uh, sent uh, ever increasing amounts of military assistance in Ukraine. Of course, that is something that the Ukrainians want. It's not a proxy war. It is Uh, war of survival uh, for the Ukrainian nation. And those countries that are more proximate to both Ukraine and to Russia have been really the leaders in this regard. The Baltic countries and Poland especially have provided lots of military assistance. Um, But even beyond military assistance, we have seen um, pledges for, um, for the provision of financial and humanitarian assistance. Again, the Baltic and the Uh, Baltic countries in Poland have been leaders. uh, Further afield, um, the United Kingdom and, of course, the United States have also been uh, very much leading. There are still some division within the alliance. It is a 30-member going on, 32-member organization. So differences of opinion are going to exist, but they have been relatively muted all the same. The European Union has imposed uh, fairly significant sanctions on Russia. And indeed, um, France has really stepped up in its strategic messaging as of late saying that Uh, The Ukrainian struggle is something very fundamental to European values and that uh, France is definitely committed to um, Ukraine over the long haul, which is not something that people would have expected um, in February or even in March of this year. So there has been a shift. People have been warning about that uh, attention dissipating, but that hasn't really quite happened yet. So I would argue that NATO and NATO countries have done a fairly decent job. Now, of course, Ukraine is not part of uh, NATO. And so there's no obligation really to come to Ukraine's uh, aid because that's just not how the treaty organization works. But all the same, it has been fairly significant in its provision of support.
0: Do you see that lasting? I mean, we heard from Olaf Scholz there. Obviously, the Germans are moving away from Russian energy. You're trying as fast as they can. It's not an easy shift for them, considering how reliant they are on Russia for a lot of what fuels their economy, what heats their homes, heats their water, and so on. Uh, but do you get the sense that this unity will last? We know we're coming up on the midterms in America. There's always political change that can happen. Um, you know, this unity strikes me as being very important for the Ukrainians right now, not just with weapons, money, and sanctions, but just the, the moral boost that it gives Ukraine to know that there's this huge... Uh, block of countries uh, watching out for it and essentially supporting it from as close as they can get?
1: So within the United States itself, I would say that support for Ukraine enjoys bipartisan support. And indeed, at least 70 to 80% of the public have reported uh, strong approval for the provision of weapons and or financial assistance to Ukraine. So I no, so I would suspect that that, continue, that would continue even after the midterms, no matter the result. With respect to Germany, I think we have to bear in mind that the German public actually has been much more supportive of Ukraine than the German state has been. And what I mean is that uh, the German state has been rather slow and hesitant in some cases to provide uh, military assistance, to actually deliver the military assistance that it has promised to provide. Whereas members of the German public have been uh, exhibiting uh, strong support for Ukraine, knowing that indeed uh, winter may be a harsh one with the energy prior being what they are in Europe. So those are two cases where we might expect some degree of fickleness that might not exist in some parts of the alliance. It even so, zo- even so, I think there's some um, de- decent basis for being optimistic about it. But of course, uh, w- war is a very uh, complex social phenomenon, and it could ta- it could take all sorts of turns. In the months ahead,
0: Alexander, thank you so much again. Well, we're here again, and Ukraine—we uh, didn't know it uh, six months ago, but Ukraine is still standing. So, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Well, the last half hour, we spoke with Alex Menoshka, and the reason why is because he was on air with us the night, the moment that Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine six months ago tomorrow six months ago tonight and our question for you tonight was do you remember where you were when a huge world or Canadian event took place we had some good answers um, it was 9 11 we watched planes hit the buildings in the library at my school that very day said Craig uh, September the 11th I was listening to Gord Whitehead on 6:30 30 ched in the morning he sounded shocked uh, at first we all were of course Sarah said in St. Albert said and Catherine Surrey says I was being checked into a woman's shelter fleeing a war of abusive marriage Uh, applause for that Uh, i was watching the plane fly into the second tower wow in real time as it happened talk about an imprint on your memory i remember that day vividly i was in a newsroom when the first plane went in and then on the american border just about when the second plane hit Um, but we're talking of course about uh, today six months since russia's invasion its full-scale invasion of ukraine Uh, And the sun is rising on Independence Day in Ukraine today. It marks obviously the six months since Russia's invasion of its neighbor triggered a war that has already seen thousands killed, including many civilians. Billions flee the fighting both internally and to to other countries. It will not be a day of defiance, at least not public displays of defiance on the streets. Authorities have canceled independence day celebrations in kiev and around the country there's widespread concern about russian missile attacks on civilians to mark the day uh, the u.s state department has even issued a security alert warning that russia could launch strikes against ukraine's civilian infrastructure and government facilities telling u.s citizens in the country to get out now so what is the mood in kiev right now and how are people looking back at the last six months and ahead to whatever lies there Joining me now from Kyiv is Kira Rudik. She's a member of the Ukrainian Parliament and head of the Golosh party. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome back.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So
0: tell me about the atmosphere as we head into uh, Independence Day. Always a big event, but I know this year it's a little bit different.
3: Well, of course, this year uh, we are all concerned because we are warned by our intelligence teams, international intelligence teams, and uh, our uh, army representatives that Putin will increase his attacks and potential attacks on Kyiv. We know that tyranny uh, is very uh, sticking to the uh, symbolic dates. So, we have seen that Putin increased his attacks on, uh, I think, 10th day of war, then hundreds day of war, then a month of war, then uh, on the time when Ukraine received candidacy to EU, then on uh, our day of constitution. And uh, now we are getting into both Independence Day and six months of war. So, he, of course, would want to use it uh, as, a, as a symbolic gesture. And we are afraid that it will be a symbolic gesture of killing more and more Ukrainians. Today, I was uh, at lunch and I can tell you many, uh, many stores and uh, cafes were closed for 23rd and 24th uh, of August uh, for the sake of uh, people being safe and for the sake of people being able to leave Kiev. So there is not too many people who stayed. But on Krishatik, on the main street, uh, we are right. putting promise to have a parade on like, the first week of war. We have this fantastic exhibition of destroyed Russian weapons and uh, machine wars, and there's so many people uh, walking around, taking pictures with their kids. Uh, uh, this is the parade that we have this year. It's different than what we had, but it's also a celebration of that after six months, we are still here. After 6 months we are alive and we are ready to fight and we are fighting back and we are having some victories.
0: That's what I wanted to, you know, that's what I want to uh to have you tell me about. I mean, when we first spoke, it was all, you know, the war was new. Uh we didn't know what was going to happen. 6 months has passed. It seems it seems incredible in some ways that 6 months has passed, but You're right. You know, there was a victory parade planned for those very roads, that very street uh, that never happened. When you look back now over the six months, uh, what what do you reflect upon in terms of the ability of Ukraine to defend itself and and just how this war has evolved?
3: Uh, Well, from not knowing what the war is and how it would affect our lives and where is our place in this war, we all turn to knowing uh and having to make the decisions of what to do and how to plan your life and we were actually nobody actually was expecting that putin will start bombarding kiev and will be destroying uh major ukrainian cities and uh nobody had thought that there will be atrocities in bucha and irpin but somehow we managed to go through it be united as uh, as ever and um and move forward ukrainian and ukrainians has shown not just uh unexpected resolve and ability to resist we knew that it was in us but there there was many more the way that we are uniting together to get money for ukrainian army the way that politicians are working together despite all the differences to show the United Front and be Team Ukraine. The way uh, the international community is standing behind us and people are still coming to fight uh, on our side. Uh, The way how the world reacts right now to the steps that the tyranny takes trying to attack the free world. So, you know, as I said, nobody actually uh, learns at the university how to, be anybody like during the war you don't know how to be a teacher during the war a doctor during the war a parent during the war a member of parliament during the war but at some point you learn and you get it and the main point is that we are not asking this question why like why did they attack why are they acting like as animals we are asking uh, this question like what are we doing what am I doing to protect my family, my city and my country? And what am I going to be doing tomorrow to bring victory closer? This is the turning point for our nation in growing up in terms uh, of that we appreciate and respect the help and support that we are receiving. But we also know that it is on us to defend uh, our country, protect our uh, people and restore our sovereignty.
0: And for you as a politician, I mean, as a public figure, um, I guess one of the things that's been most uh, marking for the for President Zelensky as well is that no one has left Kiev. No one has, no one has left the country. No one has gone away. I mean, you, I know you've done a bit of traveling since, but really most people who are responsible for running the country have stayed put all the way through. And that must send a very important message to the people of the country as well.
3: The message is very clear. This is our land. We are not going anywhere. We are here to protect it. We are here to um, fight it, uh, to fight for it with our lives, if necessary. And I think this is an important message that has the recall in in the hearts of every Ukrainian and many people of the world as well. Right now, uh, there is uh, we, we are actually standing in front of very complicated future, uh, autumn and winter, and that's why we are again uh, finding an answer to a question like where I will be the most useful, what I can do to help my country the most. And this is how my uh, job as politician evolved from staying in Kiev, being with my people, making sure that we have things organized here, uh, going through the potential siege, organizing the territorial defense. Up to the thing okay now we need money we need international support and there uh, i am uh, traveling and making sure that we will get uh the support that we need right now my main concentration is unfreezing russian assets of russian bank and russian oligarchs and using them for the sake of ukraine we know that in and winter it will be hard not only for ukrainians it will be hard for the whole democratic world and uh we expect that it will be hard for the countries to continue the support on the same level as we had it before and this is why we need to figure out where to get more money and i am saying we have this money we have them it's right there we just need an ability and a legal uh, understanding of how to take it putin should be paying for his war not uh, our allies not uh, people who are supporting us
0: I'm speaking with Kira Rudik. She's a member of the Ukrainian parliament, head of the Golosh party. We're talking about Independence Day, which uh, is coming up on Wednesday. It is also the six-month mark of the war, of the invasion, the further invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And we're talking about both uh, what awaits in the very near future, as in this week, but also what Ukraine needs ahead. As uh, Kira was mentioning, we're heading into fall and winter, it, uh, this will be a new phase of this war. It doesn't look like the war is going to end uh, anytime soon. When we come back, we'll talk about more about what Kira would like to see countries like Canada do. The German chancellors in Canada this week. The NATO Secretary General is here on Wednesday. What message does she have for them? That's next. My guest is Kira Rudik. She's a member of the Ukrainian parliament and head of the Golosh party. She's speaking to us tonight from Kyiv as uh, the Ukrainian capital gets set for what will be a quiet independence day this year under fears of further Russian attacks. It's also, of course, uh, the six months, uh, six month date, or uh, it marks six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine or further invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Kira, what message do you have? for our leaders now the german chancellor is here in canada this week so is the nato secretary general obviously you know our prime minister uh, what do you want canadian leaders other leaders and canadians to know about what ukraine needs now because it feels like everything is moving into a different phase
3: so there are three words that explain what ukraine needs weapons money and sanctions uh, sanctions against russia We need weapons, because you see that on the day 180, and uh, we are fighting not differently than on the day one, with the same resolve, with the same uh, ability to uh, fight back. But right now you see more and more victories of Ukrainian army. And this is because we finally started receiving the weapons that our allies promised us a while ago. So whatever weapons you have or plan to produce, we do need it. We are taking everything, whatever you are sending us, we are gladly take because we cannot be um, facing Russians empty handed. Second point is money. Right now, we have $5 billion a month, a gap in Ukrainian budget. And we are not like overspending or spending like it on some programs. It's just like our uh, uh, wartime being. And we will need it more and more, and we don't see how we can cover for that. And the third point is sanctions. When people are asking us, okay, so when do you think the war would end? My question is usually, well, do you think the sanctions started working? And many people think that oh, already Russia suffers, but it is not true. The real sanctions, that, is, that will be like a real hit. The uh, embargo on Russian oil will only start working in 2023. And before that, we are fighting to win this time. We are basically winning it with the blood of Ukrainian people, Ukrainian soldiers, men and women who are brave and who are fighting the evil back. So these are the three things. You know, we are uh, able to identify it very easily right now when we are saying, "Okay, we know definitely that Russia will do something on the independent day. Right. We know that they will probably increase the attack. So what do we do? And the answer is terrifying, because when we as politicians, we are saying, like, what do we do? We say, "Okay, we tell people to hide. We tell the whole country to hide. Because in six months, we still do not have the ability to make sure that people will be safe anywhere in the country. And this is the tragedy, and this is why we need more weapons, more air force protection, so we can say, okay, yes, people, uh, we know that Russia will be attacked, please pay attention to the air raid sirens, but generally we know that we will be able to fight them back. We cannot say that, and this is very frustrating, because right now, even right now in Kyiv, I'm like saying, like, what am I going to do? Well, I can tell you I will do the same as 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 every other day. I will hide if there will be Air Force uh, air raid sirens and if there will be attacks, and we will pray to God, obviously, hoping that things will be okay. But generally, the uh, the turning point of the war will be when we will be able to say, this, this, this city and region are absolutely safe.
0: Yeah, As you point out, there is no... Not a single part of Ukraine that is safe right now, safe from Russian attack.
3: Absolutely. And, and, and this is terrifying because my, I have my family that right now is in the Western Ukraine and they are, all, uh, they are all terrified, same way as we are in Kiev, same way as people in Kharkiv, everywhere. Because we know that Russians are bombarding different, uh, different areas and they are able to do that with the wide-range weapons. And this is why we do need wide-range weapons as well, to find them back there, to make sure that we destroy their ability to attack us.
0: Do you worry at all about the fact that perhaps the West is just giving Ukraine enough not to lose, but not enough to win? And that slowly but surely, people in other parts of the world start to turn their eyes away from this sort of awful situation you're describing right now this sort of reign of fear that exists alongside this reign of defiance that we've seen since the beginning
3: it's uh hard to tell uh with the amount of weapon supplies because as i said right now we are only receiving the supplies that um that, and and weapons that were we were promised like 3 months ago 2 months ago so we see the increase in the amount of weapon support what we want to see, and what would be a good indication of uh, um, of uh, the support from the Western allies, would be like another package of sanctions and uh, a resolution on the situation on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Right. That would be the good indicator, not the weapon supplies. Political uh, season will start in September where the Congress uh, or US Congress, uh, uh, Canadian Parliament and UK Parliament will be reopened and it will be a good point to see where is the Ukraine on uh, uh, on their um, uh, priority list. And I do want to see it in top three priorities. I obviously understand that uh, the energy crisis, economic crisis, they are all uh, critical for the people and the local governments. But we should not forget that up till right now, nobody has the answer to what to do if Ukraine will fail. We will try not to fail. We will do everything possible and impossible not to fail. But for us to be able to complete that, you cannot turn your eyes away. Because then you, because if you do that, then you have to have a clear answer of what you are going to do if Ukraine fails.
0: A last question, Kira. How are you? I mean, it's been six months now. I know how many interviews you've done. I know how much work you've done. Uh, you must be tired. Uh, tired and and, in, and invigorated at the same time. Tired and energetic at the same time.
3: I feel like I'm doing everything that I can and that I'm effective at what I'm doing. And I appreciate the opportunity to be talking to people from all over the world, thanking them for the support and asking for more. I do believe people need to know what is going on, need to know the truth. And I'm extremely grateful that uh, I'm the, the voice that is telling this. So thank you for this opportunity.
0: Kira Rudek, as always, thank you so much. Stay safe. And I look forward to speaking to you again.
3: Thank you and glory to Ukraine.
0: In the early days of the war, of course, we spoke to a lot of people in Ukraine about the fear of where they were. I mean, these are cities that went from being relatively peaceful to right on the front lines of a war in a matter of hours. And perhaps no city found itself in Russia's crosshairs as much as the city of Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest, predominantly Russian-speaking and less than 50 kilometers from the Russian border. We first spoke to English teacher Svetlana Prostupa, when she, her mom, and her sister were confined to the floor of their 16th floor apartment in Kharkiv, afraid to go out, afraid their building would be hit next, and wondering what could they do. Here's what she told us back on March the 1st.
4: I didn't want to leave because it's my home, and I didn't do anything wrong, and I, I don't see any reason for me to run. I think they should run. Russians should go away and stop all this nightmare. And when the war started after Thursday, we've been thinking about that a lot and talking about that a lot, and we don't know actually what to do because staying here, especially in Kharkiv, which is under a massive attack, I think the most attack, yeah, probably like the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, uh, but leaving is also a very high risk because people get shot, uh, cars get shot, people burn alive, people get uh, uh, Russian troops get host- get them hostages, mm-hmm. and so on. So we we really don't know. It's dangerous to stay, and it's dangerous to leave. We are like in fear, and we we don't know what to do.
0: Svetlana Prastupa speaking to me back on March the 1st about what life was like in Kharkiv back then. Well, in the days and weeks that followed that conversation, nearly 7 million people left the country. Millions more were displaced internally. So naturally, we wanted to know what had happened to Svetlana and her family. And we found her living in England. And she joins me now. Thanks again for your time. So nice to hear from you.
2: Thanks for having me. Nice to speak to you too. I'm happy that I'm alive to do that.
0: Yeah, indeed. I mean, when we first spoke uh, almost six months ago now, you know, it was the height of those early days at Kharkiv. It, it must have been, when you look back at those days now, it must seem like it, it was almost a bit of a dream or a nightmare, or I, I'm not sure, but how do you look back on those days now?
2: At the same time, it feels like it was ages ago, and like it was yesterday, so time, the concept of time has really changed since the war started and I sometimes don't believe fully that it happened in my life, but I'm trying to keep going because I'm really determined to see our victory and for that I need to be healthy Uh, both physically and mentally, Um, keep on improving myself, educating, working. So that's my main job now.
0: So tell me about your journey. The last time we spoke, you were uh, heading west. Uh, You hadn't quite made it as far as Kiev or Western Ukraine just yet, but you'd made it out of Kharkiv. Uh, What happened after? How did you end up in in England?
2: So the At first, as I told you last time, I really believed that I would stay at home. But the fighter jets, literally above our heads, changed my mind really quickly. And uh, we started our journey fleeing Kharkiv. We stayed in a couple of cities in Ukraine. We stayed in Warsaw. And then, by chance, I... Learned about a sponsorship scheme, which the UK government launched not um, very uh, around that time. And I decided to take this chance because I really love the English language, the culture. And I thought, why not? Why not try it? And of course, it's hard to be here alone. So my family is not with me. But... I think it's the right place for me to be because I am the most, let's say, efficient here for me, for my family, and for my country.
0: How has it been adapting? Um, Because, of course, in England, you're actually not that far away. Uh, We used to fly into Ukraine all the time from London. You're not that far away, and yet you are. You're a world away in some ways. How has it been just day to day trying to settle into this different rhythm of life where war must seem like it's it's not nearby
2: yeah that's quite surreal like you're in a different world but since i as i said love the english language and the culture i can say that i'm quite close to people here i understand them i see the world in a very similar way But of course, especially at the beginning, it was really hectic and difficult. So many new things, new routines, documents and stuff that I had to sort out. It was really, really nerve-wracking. But gradually, I think I got used to everything. I am super lucky to have a great sponsor who helps me a lot. He has introduced me to all his friends, and family. So even though I'm quite far away from my family, I found a new one, I can say, here.
0: Has your are you still in touch with, with with different people from Ukraine who've wound up in England as well? Do you, are, are people having similar experiences to you, or is it very much a, a wide spectrum of experiences for those who have left?
2: I'd say that personally, I have met several uh, other Ukrainian refugees here in the UK but I don't really have much time and maybe not so not such a strong desire to communicate with them because I have a lot of support and communication with the local people which for me is amazing and I also to um, like to have some Communication with Ukrainians, I usually do that via Zoom or uh, Viber because I want to see my friends and my family. So Ukrainians online and in real life, mostly local British people.
0: Where is everybody now, Svetlana? Where are, I mean, I remember when we first spoke, you were still in Kharkiv, you were on the bathroom floor, if I remember correctly. What happened to your sister and your mom and, and the people you were with in your family? Where are they all now?
2: So my family is quite all over the place. My father is still in Kharkiv. We um, haven't been living together for many, many years, but we are still in touch. And sometimes I call him and ask him how he's doing. Um, Then my mom and my eldest sister are in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. And my middle sister, along with her cat and dog, uh, is in Finland. So we are all over the place.
0: It must be amazing. I mean, just to think that you were all together not that long ago, and now all of a sudden you're spread out in Finland, Poland, your father back in Kharkiv, you're in the UK. Uh, What kind of toll does that take? I I imagine you hope that you'll all be together again soon.
2: I definitely still want to go back home. So my uh, final goal is to see free, beautiful Ukraine and be a part of this new journey that my country will definitely have. Uh, So, yeah, I would really love to see my relatives and my friends who are also all around the globe, France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, many, many countries, and I hope to see them again, because sometimes I feel like we may not meet in real life ever again. But I hope it's just my fears, not the reality.
0: I was speaking with Svetlana Pristupa. She is a Kharkiv uh resident or was. We spoke to Svetlana at the very in the very early days of this war, uh, back at a time when she was there and it was um the city was being shelled. It was in the early days of the Russia's invasion. Um she since She and her family, most of her family have since left. She's now in England. One of her sisters is in Finland. Her mom and her other sister are in Poland, in Warsaw. Her father's still back in Kharkiv. We're talking just about, you know, the journey that many, many millions at this point of Ukrainians have taken that has seen people go all over the world here in Canada, other parts of Europe. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about what Independence Day will mean this year um, and hopes for the future. That's next. Svitlana Pristupa is with us this half hour from England, where she now is, you may remember, back in the winter, uh, we spoke to the early spring, rather, we spoke to Svetlana when she was um, still in Kharkiv, and on her way out of Kharkiv, uh, at a time when the city was under intense bombardment from Russian forces, and it was a decision, a difficult decision to leave, but many of course have, and we're trying to find out where everyone is wound up and what their lives are like today. It's been on like, uh, Independence Day, Wednesday. Um, it'll be different for you this year, I'm sure. But you'll be looking looking home with with what kind of what, what kind of emotions this year?
2: Oh, today's also actually kind of a holiday. It's right. my city's day, the Day of Kharkiv, right. and also the Day of Ukrainian Flag. And tomorrow, the Independence Day. So the end of August has always been like quite festive for us. I obviously hope that this Independence Day brings us our victory as soon as possible. My heart wants it to happen not even tomorrow, yesterday, but I understand in my mind that it's impossible and it's not really finishing very soon. But I hope at least it doesn't take ages because Our enemy, Russia, is quite a big country and they are good at being at war. So I hope we will end this nightmare as soon as possible.
0: You must obviously still watch the images of Kharkiv as well. I know there's been more shellings recently. Um, It feels like while things have quieted down, that it's certainly not quiet.
2: Absolutely not. As far as I know, Kharkiv has been bombed every day since the 24th of February. And I've had a couple of situations when I was talking via Zoom with my friend who's in Kharkiv, another friend who's in Kiev. And while we were speaking, I could hear some explosions at the background. So I can in some way really feel how people there are doing
0: When you look at those pictures, I guess one of the questions for people who who leave a place because they have to, uh, just some of the things that you miss about home, some of the things that you miss about uh, about your town, about your city, the second largest city in Ukraine, of course.
2: I think the most honest and emotional answer would be people, maybe places that I love, some parks uh, where I spent beautiful time with people I love. Uh, but if we want to joke a bit, there's one pizza place <laughs> with absolutely uh, awful and cheap pizza, but it's like a very bright side of Kharkiv, and I'm really looking forward to eating it again.
0: Do you have hope that that will happen, Svetlana? I know it's tough uh, sometimes when you look at what's happening, uh, but deep down, do you do you have hope that you will be back there one day and that Kharkiv will rebuild and be a bit like it used to be?
2: Yes, I I know it will be. I think the cities, as you mentioned, it's the second largest city, so I'm sure we will do our best and the world will obviously help us in rebuilding it. Only yesterday I thought about one place which I thought will not be safe ever again, It's in uh, Kharkiv region, a small forest, and the combats were quite um, horrible there. And before the war for my whole life, my family used to go there for summers and spend some time in a forest near the lake. And I think because of how damaged this area is now and how many mines you can find there it's not going to be safe for many many years and that made me very sad because i really loved going back there every year so some places i think are lost if not forever but for a very long time but harkiv the city i'm sure it will be fine i really believe in that
0: when we first spoke, I remember you saying that you had been teaching an English class, I think, um, just a few nights earlier before everything started. Um, how much for you now? Uh, what are your plans? What do you hope to achieve in the next little while and what do you what keeps you what keeps you focused and what keeps you um I guess the the right word would be sane uh, given all the incredible things that you've lived through in the past six months?
2: I think again, people <laughs> uh, make me sane because I know, what I'm living for, and also realizing that my family and my country need me, and I am in London, which is absolutely incredible and exceptional in the past, I thought I would never come here even as a tourist because it's very expensive and quite closed. My family is not rich at all, so coming even as a tourist sounded impossible but now i'm here and i have all those opportunities and it would be a crime not to use them that's why i'm i keep working as an english teacher with my ukrainian students online i do some translate translations for london companies I work at a bakery in London, so I try to do as much as possible and gain as much experience as I can.
0: Svitlana, thank you so much for uh, for ha- taking the time to catch up. It's, it's great to hear that you're okay. Yeah, our thoughts are with you as always.
2: Thank you very much. I could feel how the Canadian listeners were rooting for me and hoping that I pull through. Thank you so much.
0: Well, tonight we begin our week's long series called Code Blue. It's a closer look at the causes of Canada's current healthcare crisis and possible solutions. Doesn't matter what politicians say, we understand the system is in crisis. It has been in crisis for quite a long time, uh, but certainly it was exacerbated by the pandemic, and now we're reaping the it we're at least reaping the problems of that. Now, the red flags have certainly been raised this summer as a number of emergency rooms across the country have been forced to close or reduce hours due to staffing shortages. And nurses in particular is where the big problem is. COVID, people off sick, burnout continues to see staff either away or leaving the profession altogether. We know this is a problem. Well, yesterday, the premiers of Ontario and the Atlantic provinces met in Moncton and said a, quote, Team Canada approach is needed to find a solution for the crisis they're facing in their respective regions. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says any solution must draw on suggestions from nurses, doctors, heads of hospitals, and the government. We need to start sharing best practices, better ways of doing things. What, what are you hearing in New Brunswick? What are you hearing in PEI and, and in Nova Scotia? And, and really uh, support each other. That's never happened. I've never seen everyone as coordinated and focused uh, for the entire country as we are now. Uh, No offense to Premier Doug Ford, but shouldn't you have been doing this all along? It's astounding. New Brunswick's Premier, Blaine Haig said it's not about doing more of the same, but finding fundamental ways to improve. All of which means if you actually listen to what people were saying, they were saying nothing, essentially. They don't have any ideas, you know nurses, doctors, heads of hospitals have been saying for years what should be done in this system. And it doesn't seem like anyone's listening. And now we're talking about Team Canada's approach. Our Team Canada approach, it's not about doing more of the same, but finding fundamental ways to improve. All of it is just air. It's air. If you're sitting in an emergency room waiting, it's air. It's nothing. These are words of nothingness. And that's the problem in all this, is lots of people, premiers, the prime minister, talk and they talk and they talk and they never say anything. So maybe this is a step in the right direction. But again, it comes as emergency room staff across the country look beyond what has been a very challenging summer towards what could be an even worse situation in the fall and winter. One of the emergency rooms at the center of all this so far this summer is the Perth and Smiths Falls District Hospitals emergency room just outside of Ottawa. The ER there was closed for three weeks. Imagine three weeks. Earlier this summer, after a COVID-19 outbreak among ER staff, led to critical staffing shortages. Well, joining me now is Dr. Alan Drummond. He's an emergency room physician at that very hospital. He's also co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Federation of Emergency Physicians. So he has a much broader view of all of this. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to see you've reopened after what was a very, I mean, a three-week, I guess it was closure of at least one ER in uh, the Perth and Smiths Falls District Hospital. How did that experience leave you feeling about just the general issue we've been talking about about the crisis in ERs across the country this summer?
5: It left me feeling uh, vulnerable uh, a little bit uh, because we have a good emergency department. We have an excellent track record for for community service. You know, we're well recognized as. Being a good institution, uh, and even we uh, ended up, uh, you know, in this maelstrom of uh, closure. So that made me feel quite unsettled, a little unhappy, uh, a little unhappy, perhaps with you know our administration uh, in terms of their response time and their understanding of what the root causes were. Uh, I know that my community uh, felt uh, threatened. Uh, and unhappy uh, and probably was caught a little bit off guard by, by the closure. But I would imagine that there are a lot of communities right now going through pretty much the same thing. I mean, there are some hospitals uh, and regions that always uh, are dealing with unanticipated closures, and most notably in Nova Scotia and in Western PEI, uh, the interior of British Columbia a little bit, you know, Clearwater, all, uh, all Oliver those kind of places. So uh, a lot of those places have chronic uh, histories of difficulty with staffing, Ontario has not been that way. And we most certainly have not been that way. So it's been a bit of a wake up call uh, going forward. Uh, you know, I want to make sure this never, ever happens again. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to do in, uh, in terms of restoring the confidence of our staff, restoring our confidence in our administration and in our government and, and bringing the community back on side, because I feel that they, they've probably felt very, uh, uneasy about this, uh, this exposure, uh, that was, went on for three weeks. So
0: vulnerable is, is, is an apt word. Uh, how did you saw, I mean, when we last spoke, you pointed out the real problem was nursing, uh, staff shortages on the nursing side. How did you solve the problem? And is it sustainable?
5: Well, we haven't solved the problem. I mean, we've, we've been able to mitigate the problem a little bit. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of new hires, which is helpful, uh, but it takes some time to bring them, uh, you know, to be inculcated with the culture of our emergency department and, you know, workflow and how that works. And we've, The hospital has gone ahead and ordered, uh, hired a couple of agency nurses on the short term to, to help sustain us through the busy su- summer months. Uh, going forward, you know, I, uh, I, I I don't think the agency nurses will stay. We're, we've been very fortunate uh, that the agency nurses that they have hired seem quite competent and very friendly and fit in pretty well. But, you know, they will move on and uh, we, we are going to have to find uh, adequate nursing to cover going forward. The question is going to be, you know, I like to think that COVID's in the rearview mirror, but it is not. And, uh, you know, so we're pretty fragile still. And I'm just a bit worried about what happens if we, you know, COVID 8.0 or something or other uh, in the months ahead and we get staff illness and how that's going to leave us. So I I still feel exposed and vulnerable uh, and I'm, you know, continue to keep my fingers crossed that we can rebuild our staff, rebuild the team that we lost and uh, and be prepared for what may be a difficult uh, few months.
0: Yeah, because fall and winter is typically a time where you would see more, a busier ER, no?
5: So we are, unlike our urban colleagues, uh, rural rural hospitals can be quite traffic uh, because we live on a, a fairly significant highway. So uh, summer is pretty busy for us because we see a lot of walking wounded, poison ivy, fish hooks, you know, fireworks, yeah. injuries, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we also live in a retirement community. We have a lot of elderly people here. If you're 80 here, we consider you to be a teenager, practically. And, and uh, uh, I, you know, uh, yeah, we, we could be pretty overwhelmed pretty quickly.
0: We've been hearing, since we last spoke even, we've been hearing certainly a lot of recognition that there is a crisis here, and a crisis that is not like, perhaps, crises of the past, but an exacerbation of the crises of the past or the problems of the past. Are you hearing what you want to hear from policymakers and those who are in a position to at least start to solve or at least address some of these issues?
5: So this is part of the problem. I mean, from an Ontario perspective, everybody's talking about Team Ontario, running around saying, oh, shucks, folks. Uh, yeah, times are tough, and you know, and, but you know what? People are being seen within a timely manner and every every emergency physician and nurse in this province start looking for the barf bag, like wh- which reality are you living in? Because it's just not frankly true. You know, people are waiting much longer than they ever have. We've got higher volumes. We've got less staff to deal with this kind of stuff, increasing complexity of the patients. So, you know, the 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 old one-hour wait time in eMERGE in Ontario is now stretched out to eight hours. We have a health minister equally living in an alternate universe uh, who's saying, well, I don't consider And so these are practically – this is practically a quote. It would be inappropriate to deem this to be – A crisis. What crisis are you talking about? Well, you know, I've been in Ontario since 1983. I follow emergency medicine issues pretty fervently. We haven't had a real closure in Ontario since about 2008, when a couple of hospitals in southwestern Ontario had some problems with physician staffing for a month or two, or had problems with nursing staffing for a month or two, but no real formal closures for, I don't know, was it now, Uh, probably 12, 13 years. Uh, about two years ago, a small hospital in central Ontario called uh, Chesley, I think it was, started to have closures because of nursing problems, a really small hospital, not even sure that they even need a hospital. But uh, again, I'm ignorant of that particular circumstance, so I'm not sure. But we haven't had anything like this uh, in, in over 10 years. Uh, and the uh, frequency and the magnitude of these closures is uh, fairly significant, and um, so a lot of rural hospitals have had to close for, you know, days or hours. And the media keeps reporting that, oh, some Ontario hospitals have had to close for a day or two. And like, well, we closed for three weeks, so get real here. So we we have a minister of health who doesn't really understand the problem. And she doesn't exactly inspire confidence in her knowledge of what's actually going on. We have a premier who's, you know, using political doublespeak to wallpaper the, the cracks in the system so i'm not very heartened uh, uh frankly uh that our leaders get it and if our leaders don't get it then i guess we're not going to have team ontario after all and you know it's uh so am i optimistic well you know i'm i'm, I'm, I'm and it doesn't extend to just rural communities the urgent care center in Kingston. Uh, Had to limit this summer the number of people that they were seeing because of short staffing. Forty doctors at St. Joe's in in Toronto recently penned a letter to their administration saying, "Yeah, we're like we're a big, busy emergency department, and we're quite frankly totally unhappy with uh, the situation in our emergency department. We're concerned about patient safety." Uh, A a very notable doctor from uh, St. Mike's was recently on a panel discussion with the Ontario Medical Association for the public. And he said, uh, literally, he was 99% confident that things would get worse this this winter. This is a guy who you're not not big on rhetoric, just plain facts. And he's 99% confident that things are going to get worse. He refused to say 100% because he wanted to maintain that one percent of optimism uh, that might you know might exist. But it's city doctors,
0: it's good to have hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, 1%. we all have
5: hope, right? No. Yeah. So city doctors and rural doctors in the emergency department in this province are saying. Things are bad, and we kind of think they're going to get worse. So that should give you some kind of sense of of where we're at.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Drummond as part of our Code Blue series. Each week, we'll be looking at uh, the the crisis in Canada's healthcare system. There's no other way to paint it right now. Uh, Dr. Drummond is an emergency room physician at the Perth and Smiths Falls District Hospital near Ottawa. His emergency room was closed for three weeks earlier this summer. He's also co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Federation of Emergency Physicians, so has a nice lens on what's happening right across the country. When we come back, we will talk about, and we we talk about this all the time, but what are the solutions and what should, uh, you know... Premier Ford was talking about bold ideas the other day. What does that mean? You know, I want to hear from physicians. He said, I get the impression physicians have been talking for a long time about this. We'll be back with that. Our guest this half hour is Dr. Alan Drummond. He's an emergency room physician at the Perth and Smiths Falls District Hospital near Ottawa. Uh, His ER was quite uh, notably closed for three weeks earlier this summer due to staffing issues. It has reopened since, but he's worried about uh, what comes come fall and winter. Uh, He's also co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Federation of Emergency Physicians, so has a good view of what's happening right across the country. I mean, one of the things we always try to do on these shows is talk about solutions. Uh, But when I hear politicians talk about bold ideas, Ideas, and now we're arguing about public versus private again, uh, without really recognizing what that even means. Um, what are some good solutions, Dr. Drummond? What could we do in the short term to try to alleviate some of what we're witnessing here?
5: Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the short term because uh, the you know the recent plan released by the Ontario government, is, and which will be looked at by other governments, make no doubt about it in this federation. You know, one province tries one thing, so other provinces often will mimic that to see if it works. Uh, And there was no urgency whatsoever uh, from the Doug Ford government. They were talking about opening X number of beds, you know, by the year 2028 and, you know, hiring international nurses by 2025 and increasing medical school enrollment, which is basically an eight year lag time before we actually see them on the ground. So no sense of urgency whatsoever in terms of our current crisis, because they refuse to accept that there's a crisis. Uh, and no real attention paid to the real issue here, which is nursing retention. And you know, so they talk about international nurses. They you know talk about you know anything other than what they need to do, which is a pay the nurses more money, but b make their make their working conditions uh, safer by attacking crowding, increasing patient uh, nurse patient ratio. So all of that was missing in action. So you know, it should give you some sense of of why we have little optimism that this government understands you know, anything. And unfortunately, uh, other provinces I suspect probably don't have the same handle. So so here's the deal, here's what needs to be done. You can, you can pay the nurses whatever you like uh, and do they deserve it? The answer is they sure do. But no nurse uh, is gonna come back to a work environment where they are stressed, burnt out, overly tired, fatigued, worried about their license, worried about their patients, having to deal with boarded patients in the emergency department, ambulances unable to offload and violence which is our common daily occurrences in every emergency department in this country. So no amount of money is gonna improve that work environment. So what we need to do is look at the root causes. Uh, They have been fully articulated by our association, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, for close to 20 years now. So we need to look at crowding. And crowding in the emergency department is not a reflection of people overusing the emergency department. It's a reflection of a crowded hospital most hospitals are deemed safe when they have 85% bed occupancy. They've got extra room to accept admitted patients. There isn't a hospital in this country that's seen that occupancy rate at all. We most often try to function at 100 120%, which means our hospitals are crowded, which means our emergency departments can't transfer admitted patients, and they occupy our treatment stretchers for days. And every time an emergency department stretcher is occupied, that means four or five patients per hour are stuck in a waiting room waiting to be seen. So we need to address the bed occupancy issue, especially since we have an aging population. We need to improve our bed availability, which means a staffed bed with a staffed nurse, to get down to that magic number of 85%. In order to do that, we also have to increase bed availability in the community, which means improving home care so it's something meaningful, and increasing access to long-term care beds, which is not always easy in rural environments. We need to start uh, now re- recommitting to a culture of patient safety. Uh, currently, in any emergency department in this country, is largely not safe because we're crowded and stressed. And the patients fall through cracks. So we need the governments to say, you know, what? We, budgets are important, but so is patient safety. So let's, let's look at that. What are we going to do? We're going to end hallway medicine. So we're going to look at crowding in hospitals and increase our flow to the floors. We're going to look at, uh, you know, boarding patients in the emergency department for 24 hours stuck in some back hallway where they can conveniently die because we haven't had a chance to see them and they're not being monitored properly. We're going to look at, you know, this issue of ambulance offloads because we've had cases of people dying in the back of ambulances waiting to be seen. So we need to embrace a culture of safety for our patients and get back to that, 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 that attitude. We need to look at, violence and abuse in the emergency department we've proposed solutions uh the provinces are balkanized but we need a national approach a a national template to mitigate violence to prevent nurses from leaving because they're afraid for their their well-being and i think you know uh also we probably need to look at wellness of our health providers uh not just take a yoga lesson or take a resilience lesson or eat more tofu and yoga and be kind to yourself but actually you know making sure that we understand that a healthy workforce is good for everybody. It's good for the patients. It's good for the hospital. It's good for the economy. Uh, we don't have people leaving on workman's compensation for for stress leave. So, you know, we need to start respecting and valuing our nurses uh, and making sure that they are happy and that they are nurtured and that we don't lose, uh, you know, a nurse after a 10-year career because she's burnt out or he's burnt out. So we need to do better.
0: Well, it sounds like you have a pretty good idea of where the solution, where you start where one starts to fix this, and that is uh, you know, a combination of, of both good HR and safe working conditions. I mean, it doesn't sound, it's not like a, a completely new system has to be invented, just fix what you got, right?
5: We can't dodge the fact that this is a national problem. And, you know, the government, the national government does pay some funding towards healthcare, there should be some accountability for that. And I think at some point, it would be really a good idea to have a commission looking at, what has gone wrong here that suddenly, you know, emergency medicine and emergency departments are in crisis in this country when before we had a pretty fulsome dependable service and suddenly it's all gone to hell in a handbasket. So, you know, the, the national government probably could be very helpful in at least fostering a discussion with the provinces about what a national template for emergency services would look like uh, in terms of rural departments. You know, it's not reasonable to suspect anymore that every small community can maintain Uh, a 24-hour service. So if not that, then what? And probably a discussion about regionalization of services.
0: Dr. Drummond, thank you so much for your time once again.
5: Thank you for having me so much. I appreciate it.
0: That's right. We continue our look into back to school for 2022. Last night, we started with some tips on how parents and students can try to beat the rising cost of, well, just about everything when it comes to getting back to school stuff. You can find that interview with parenting specialist Allison Schaefer on the A Little More Conversation podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. That's true for all the interviews we do on this show. If you need to catch up, go there. They're all segmented individually. You can pick and choose which ones you like, or we have a synopsis of all of them each night, a sort of best of that you can listen to as well. Tonight, we're going to look at a different topic, and that is a teacher shortage. A lot of this is coming out of the U.S. Obviously, as you know, in this country, we pay a lot of attention To what's going on uh, in the United States. Reports coming out of there these days are staggering, with estimates that the country is about 300,000 people short teachers and staff, apparently, according to the National Education Association. And a shortage of teachers is also here, we think, uh, as well as certified substitutes to fill in for them. And it emerged as a major disruption to the Canadian classrooms in the early waves of the pandemic, but is it still a problem for many school districts heading into this new school year? If so, what impact can it have? And uh, is it being felt the same way everywhere? You know, there's no one cause, obviously, if there's a teacher shortage, uh, but there are perhaps some universally applicable solutions. So joining me now with more on this is Alison Jewell. She's chair of the Association of the BC Deans of Education and an executive for the Association of Canadian Deans of Education. Thank you so much for your time
6: tonight. Yeah, thank you for inviting me.
0: So we've obviously have been seeing a lot of the stories coming out of the U.S. where it seems to be a huge issue going into this return uh, to class 20, in September. We haven't seen as much about it here, but I gather it's still an issue because it has been uh, over the past little while.
6: Yes. Well, the thing that makes Canada unique when it comes to school is that each province governs its own education system and governance. So there's not a national association as there would be in the U.S., so their numbers are coming from a national look, as where our numbers would usually just emerge from within the province. There's a ministry of education in each province that would oversee K-12 schooling. So that's one big difference with the U.S. Um, And then the two major issues are recruitment and retention of teachers wherever you are, there is a teacher shortage across Canada, as you say, and how different provinces respond are often unique. But there are those two major issues no matter where you are in Canada, and that is the recruitment and retention of teachers. And the recruitment it includes those who attend our teacher education programs and become certified teachers in due course, but we also need teachers in rural and remote and Indigenous communities throughout the country. And those teachers are more difficult to recruit. They live in more rural and remote locations. To get to one of the nine teacher education programs in BC, for example, they would need to travel to a major centre and commit to that time of study for, you know, a, a year or two, depending on, on which teacher education program uh, they would p- be part of. And then the recruitment for international teachers as well has a certain process um, of certification. And the nine standards of education would be in, would be a focus for all the teacher ed programs and then all of the various international students that do come to Canada to teach in our schools. So that's one aspect. And um, the other is retaining teachers, and this might be a bit more surprising to some. They become teachers, they've worked hard to do so, and then they don't necessarily stay in the profession. Um, There might might be higher rates than than we might expect, but there are some reasons, I think, that might explain it. One is, at the moment, COVID really um, did a number, (laughs) <laughs> on teachers, of
0: course,
6: uh, it was incredibly complicated to um, put schools online or uh, follow all protocols while students were in the school. And how do you keep up with the the lessons and the curriculum? And many teachers are at home with their own children, <laughs> dealing with the same things. So that was a that's a current factor, and we're we're barely coming out of that. But even so, um, teaching is not the same job as it was. 10, 20 years ago, Uh, teaching is much more complicated. Um, We have more student-focused methods, um, which we think are fantastic, but they do take more time and energy. Um, And you don't go into teaching if you want to make a lot of money. So that's an issue uh, that I think in some cases.
0: Is it, uh, I mean, understandably, and you've mentioned this already, the impact of this is felt differently. We know that in rural communities, in remote communities, and in indigenous communities, that this is a long-standing issue. Uh, but what is the impact? And you, and you mentioned, of course, that we don't really understand how it impacts each province unless we look into each province's unique situation. Uh, for instance, in BC, there was a, a court decision, obviously, that meant hiring a lot more teachers. All of a sudden, I know that's been problematic here in British Columbia. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what are some of the common, and you mentioned, sort of retention and and, and hiring, um, recruitment and retention, but what have been some of the impacts right across the board? Are are we seeing it manifest itself in schools now in a way that we didn't see 20 years ago?
6: Well, yes, um, that would have to do in large part to the teacher education programs themselves and the limits uh, put on those programs regarding how many students can enroll And that is a funding issue. Um, Each government in each province would need to respond to that. But, oh, for example, um, in B.C., where where I'm located, um, for the past, well, five, six, seven years, um, all the teacher education programs put together are putting out 1,600 or so teachers per year into the system. And that's remained the same (laughs) Um, throughout. There hasn't been an increase in the number of seats within teacher education programs. So there's that. Um, And, yeah, funding would be an issue right there. I also think that there's, you know, maybe just a complicated connection with education in general. You know, Canada is considered a schooled society. Most of us go through the K-12 system. Um, Most of us are in the public system uh, doing that in our own childhoods, and our children go to public schools as well, and they're relatively consistent throughout the country. There are uh, regional differences, but in general, it is difficult to recruit and retain teachers. And in some cases, you can use the the substitute teachers or the teachers on call to um, fulfill the need for a teacher in any given school. Uh, We certainly are finding across the country that those substitute teacher lists are shrinking and shrinking, and so even when everyone, all the teachers have been put in place for a September start and all looks, you know, tickety-boo, um, if, a, if a teacher needs to go on leave or is sick for any length of time, um, they need to have a substitute teacher. If <laughs> there aren't any substitute teachers left because they've all been hired into full-time positions, um, then that becomes you know, pretty urgent crisis the day of in some schools with the principals coming in perhaps and, and leaving the class. So it is a, it is a crisis, and, uh, you know, I think we all have to reckon with that, that teachers work really hard. It's a really difficult job, and you know, being with children, nine to four in some cases, it can be a very long day with um little, you know, money in many cases, the, the, that changes from um, province to province. I know in BC, it's particularly low, uh, which is difficult with a high, um, you know, living expenses are incredibly yeah, high, I'm kidding. particularly in the urban centres. So, you know, the urban centres, the people are there, um, but then the expenses are there as well. And to attract teachers to D.C. when they look at the cost of living and the wage, that sometimes is enough to put them off, they make make money somewhere else. Um, But there are steps, I know, that the provinces are making regarding international teachers, the need for international teachers to come and fill some of these spots. Um, And BC, in particular, is working on something quite quite unique in this regard, and that is putting um, an introduction to the BC school system and the teacher standards for all international teachers to take this course, to orientate them to the schools. And then get them in to the schools um, without compromising on the quality we, we demand of our teachers, um, but giving them these extra courses to support them um, when they do come so that they are prepared for the system that they're entering. In some cases, the international teachers come with a lot of uh, you know, similar qualifications and they know the system well enough to fit right in. but. Not in every case, and the provinces are unique enough. So if an international teacher has come to Saskatchewan, for example, um, and then they move to the Vancouver area, it's a different curriculum, and um, there are different um, expectations of teachers in different provinces. So that's a factor that's unique.
0: it is. I mean, it, it makes it sound like obviously it's it's just uh, tough to find people. I mean, and obviously you know, someone with an education degree, especially these days, they have options, right? There are others, yeah. other jobs out there if if they, if they need be, if they feel like either it's uh, too much work or it's been too difficult or they aren't making the sort of impact they would like to make, which I guess is part yeah. of it as well. I'm speaking with Alison Jewell. She's chair of the Association of the BC Deans of Education and an executive for the Association of Canadian Deans of Education. We're talking... On our back-to-school specials this week, uh, every night at 9 p.m. Pacific, we're going to tackle a back-to-school issue this year. Tonight, we're looking at teachers and a shortage of teachers. It's something that we don't know the exact numbers of across the country, uh, but we know there are too few of them. When we come back, some solutions, because, Allison, I know you have some ideas about how to make this better. Some of it involves things that teachers have been doing a lot of of late, and that's using remote technology to educate. We'll be back with that. And we're learning tonight from Alison Jewell, who's the chair of the Association of the BC Deans of Education and an executive for the Association of Canadian Deans of Education. We're talking teachers, the lack of them, or the relative lack of them, uh, in this <laughs> country. Um, Alison, I was reading that you had some good idea. I mean, one that made very. Perfect sense, and you were mentioning this earlier—the the sort of how prohibitive it can be for some to try to have to come to one of the city, the centers, the urban centers, to learn to you know to do teacher ed. And you know, the last few years we've seen there have been complications, but we've seen that that you know a combination of in person and remote learning can work. And this would might be a really good way of encouraging more people uh, to become teachers if they were allowed to stay in their neighborhoods or their homes, or their hometowns, to do some of that learning.
6: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Ben. Because um, we also need more teachers in those areas. So the the better chance of getting them there is if they're already there. So if if there was a, a way, and I think some universities are trying some pilot projects about with this kind of model, you could do some of the teacher education courses um, online. It's the practicum, student teaching experiences that are so central to the teacher education programs and getting a B.Ed., the Bachelor of Education degree, which is what you need to be a certified teacher in Canada. Um, so that some of those courses could be done online or hybrid model. Um, there are lots of ways that universities and professors are are playing with different modalities of delivering their courses. So there might be some online and then some uh, asynchronous um, assignments or readings that are done the student does that independently and then returns to a, like a Zoom call or something similar. Um, there are other ways to do it. Um, one would be a remote, a, a professor from a teacher education program goes <laughs> to, to a community that, um, you know, doesn't have a teacher education program within, within the, the vicinity and offer those courses um, there. That would take a big commitment from a university um, but there are universities in northern cities as well, and so that that's another option. The practicum time, the student teaching hours needed uh, to qualify, that is a, that's tricky because all across the country, the student t- teaching experience is overseen um, by a certified teacher within the classroom, and there's a teacher shortage and it's difficult to get teachers in certain areas uh, rural and remote and Indigenous communities (laughs) trying to set up the student teaching experiences for 12 weeks is is usually the the amount across the country that can take some real um, commitment on the part of people involved to get to the remote and um, rural schools so to supervise and oversee the, the student teaching experience so Setting up those ideas, I think, are really important going forward. Um, the Canadian North needs more um, more of our attention and more teachers as well. And our best the best opportunity is to use the people who are already living there, um, yeah. instead of them having to come down to the major cities and centers. That maybe we, as teacher education programs, we go there um, and try and work through different different even um, you know, usually the teacher education programs just go straight through without breaks. But maybe we need more breaks for for a different kind of um, situation as well. Yeah,
0: make it more and, student friendly and more flexible, at least to the students themselves, yeah. since we're trying to encourage people both to to enroll. And then yeah. to stay, which uh, which you're, you're absolutely right. You've talked, too, about just expanding the number of seats in teacher education, period. You mentioned that BC, of course, hasn't increased the number of, of seats uh, for teacher education, despite the fact that there is a higher demand for teachers now.
6: Right. Yeah so that that funding comes from not the Ministry of Education and Child Care but the Ministry of Advanced Education and Skill and Trades that ministry oversees universities and so sometimes the university governance doesn't match quite with um, teacher qualification requirements as well that that can mess up university calendars um, and other kind of like how do you organize some of that um But it's the the thing that I find so compelling, and this is from talking with the deans across the country in B.C., but also at the national organization, too, um, I think sometimes there's a feeling that the teachers, they get a hard time out there. You know, parents complain or... um, you know, the students are coming from different kinds of homes where authority or, you know, is, works differently. And so there's a, there can be a low morale in certain schools or school districts or areas. Just even from that, I think, can be a way that um, we want to keep teachers there. How can we make that so? How can we make the school environment for teachers? A supportive one, um, where they enjoy being at work. Most people who want to be teachers want to work with children and young people, and they care about doing a really good job, and um, that motivates them. Teacher, the best teachers, and we would all have had them in our own. Um, Kindergarten degree 12 experiences, the best teachers care. They really care. They take the time to get to know the students and to walk alongside them um, through the ups and downs of, of any given a uh, school year. So, yes, I think getting to um, being more creative oh. with where we offer the programs and then understand the complexity of the job, you know, can, Canadian
0: general I'm running out of time I appreciate your insight on this tonight thank you so much
6: thank you